Welcome to Herp Talk Radio. I'm your host, Matthew, and my co-host is Peggy Detmer. Coming to you live from the Black Hills. It's Herp Talk Radio. All right, welcome to this episode of Herp Talk Radio. Um, we have a special guest here at the beginning of this podcast, uh, Dr. Travis Wyman. Dr. Wyman's a geneticist by day. Uh, he's also a ball python breeder. He's been in this hobby for numerous years, uh, pretty much his whole life. Uh, I heard him on an episode of the Herpeticulture Network uh, with Justin Smith talking about uh, what he's going to talk about here, and it impacted me personally. Uh, I've My mom ran a daycare as a kid, and I have watched people not have kidneys and have to go through dialysis, so I thought it was a very important thing to bring him on and uh, talk about this with you. After this, we'll get to Mike uh, from Mike's Aquatics and uh, enjoy the show, guys. Uh, well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate it. Um, so I'm I'm reaching out to the community. You'll probably hear me bouncing around different pods over the next week or so. Um, but basically what I've got going on is that my wife is a type one diabetic and having, you know, lived with the disease all of her life, it, um, it tends to break down the kidneys and she's hit the point where her kidneys have begun to enter into kidney failure. Um, and what that means for us is that now she is on a wait list, um, to get a kidney transplant, but that wait list currently has, you know, across the country, 90,000 people on it. Um, and the wait list is for a kidney from a deceased individual, which, you know, people hear that and they think, you know, well, you know, I've signed my donor card, I've signed it on the back of my driver's license, and lots of people do that, so it should be easy to get kidneys. But it's not actually that easy because for a deceased kidney to be viable, the person has to pass in relatively specific ways. Basically, it's somebody who passes while they're on life support and there's not been any kind of traumatic injury to them. So, you know, somebody who dies in a car accident or something like that, their kidneys generally aren't candidate because they've been damaged too much. Um so because of that, the deceased kidney list, the wait time is four to eight years for somebody once they get on. And sadly, about a third of the people who end up on that list come off because they either pass away before they could get a kidney or they're rendered medically ineligible. And that basically ends up putting them on dialysis for life and then they will pass away without getting a kidney. Um, so to try and change that four to eight year wait list for my wife with, you know, a one third chance of not making it through. Um, we are looking for uh, living kidney donor options and people kind of get scared when they hear that idea, but you know, we both, we all have two kidneys and those two kidneys do the work of basically four times what you need. So even losing one kidney, you still have two times the capacity that you would need. And, this process radically helps uh, transplant recipients. Um, the recruitment time for people who go in looking for a living donor tends to be about a year to 18 months before they find a kidney that works for them. Um, 
And then the lifespan of that kidney, once it's transplanted into them, is 20 to 40 years, which is almost twice what you have with a deceased kidney. Um, and that's a great thing because that usually means that somebody who receives a living kidney doesn't end up back on the transplant list. Oftentimes people who get a deceased kidney end up going back on the list because that kidney will also end up failing after, you know, 10 to 15 years or so. Yeah, that's exactly what happened to my friend that I was telling you about. So he got the transplant and it failed and he's still on dialysis and it's not great. Yeah, it's not. Um, and it's, it's really hard on a person's body when they go into dialysis. It makes it harder for them sometimes to be able to then accept a kidney and have that kidney take. So ideally you want to not go on there, but if you are on dialysis, you know, getting a transplant is still going to make a huge difference in your life. Cause you're not, you know, stuck in a room for three hours, four hours, five hours, every two or three days, having your body pumped clean. Or if you opt for the at home dialysis, basically you hook up to a machine every night and for eight hours, you have to stay on that machine. There's just no ifs, no ands, no buts. Yeah, I, um, I know that that inhibits travel and everything, my friend. So, yeah, yeah, watching all that, it's it's real hard. Yeah, it is. It's real hard. <clears throat> and <laughs> again, this is why I'm reaching out because it's something we'd really like to avoid is you know having these things happen. Um, the other kind of I don't know necessarily great thing, but what appeals to me with the living donor process, and I'm going through it myself, I'm getting myself evaluated, um, is that there are a lot of organizations, and the one we're specifically working with is the National Kidney Registry, but there are others out there. Um, they have protections built into the way they work um, to basically help you as a donor. So they offer what's known as the kidney for life protocol, which if you as a donor ever later in life end up needing a kidney, you're automatically bumped to the top of the list um, <clears throat> and given priority for a living kidney over a deceased kidney. But they will give you the first kidney they can get their hands on that matches you regardless. Um, there's zero obligation once you start the process. Um, so, you know, if you get halfway through and then realize that, it's not for you and it's become too much for you. You have the ability to back out and there are no repercussions, you know, no punitive actions against you or anything. In fact, they, the donor team is completely separate and independent from the recipient team. And so the recipient would know nothing about where you are in the process unless you specifically told them. So, okay. In theory, you could get in, you could say, you know, get through all the way up to the point where you're basically walking in the door and then say, I've changed my mind, I can't. And the donor's team will then talk to the recipient team and say, there's been something that has come up and they are now medically inoperable. So it takes it away. You don't have to worry about, you know, being, being trapped into a situation if that's something you're afraid of. Um these programs offer financial compensation to help cover things like, you know, travel um, to get you there. If you make it all the way to a transplant surgery, uh, time off of work can be covered. There's a lot of associated medical costs, but you're responsible for none of it. So basically you're 
kind of getting $10,000 plus in free medical testing. Um, well, that's pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it, it's some pretty intense medical testing. You know, you get, you get a CAT scan, so you get to find out, you know, how your insides look at the same time as, you know, how your outsides look. And not a lot of people get free CAT scans for no good right. reason. <laughs> yeah. Those are expensive um, too. Yeah, they are. <laughs> um, it's also done on your schedule. So like if you do end up being a match for a recipient, you don't have to be, you know, put in right away, basically. You know, if you had, if you've got a wedding coming up, if you've got a vacation planned or something, you can still go and take that vacation and stuff. And then when you get back, when you're all recovered, if you've got a major deadline at work that you can't get away from, but in a month and a half, it'll be taken care of. You can schedule it for that and then do it then. It's not just, no, you have to do it right now. Um, that's also kind of nice for the recipient because if you're dealing with the deceased kidney, Basically, you get a call, and you've got two hours to get to the hospital. And that call could be at 2 o'clock in the afternoon, or it could be at 2 o'clock in the morning. Um, so that's, you know, not not a, not a great way to go about things. But again, if you're in a position where that's all you've got, then you go for it. Good. Yeah. Um, the impact on donors is actually fairly minimal. Like I said, you know, you've got two kidneys. Your body works perfectly fine with just one. Um the surgery is not super invasive. You're in the hospital for maybe a day or two, and there's no major impact on your life after that. You know, you got to let yourself recover from being cut open. Um, you know, you'll probably be out of work for a couple of weeks or so, just, you know, get to have some downtime. But once you're all healed, you know, if you're a marathon runner, you can go run marathons. If you like to ski, you can still ski. You can do all those things that you did before you donated the kidney. You're not, you know, trapped into being a, okay, well now I have to be a couch potato for the rest of my life. Cause I only got one kidney and I don't have the energy or the ability to do things. Right. Um, and then the last thing about living kidney donation, that's very appealing. Um, at least again, to me and very helpful to recipients is what's known as paired exchange programs. And the way those work is if you go through, the whole process, but find out you're not a very good match for the recipient, you can enter this paired system where they find somebody who needs a kidney that you do match with, and then they take their donor who's not a match to them and find a recipient to that person. And it basically builds a chain where, you know, I would give to Dave in Tennessee and Dave's recipient or Dave's donor would give to Mary in St. Louis and Mary's donor would give to Mark up in St. Paul and then Mark's donor would give to my wife. So you get this great big chain and from, you know, basically you start the chain and you've changed now four lives instead of just changing one life. Um, that's pretty cool. And that's that a really that's nice thing. In effect, I know that like getting matched for kidneys is super, super hard. And there's, there's a lot more than just, you got to match blood type. You got to match a whole bunch of different things. Yeah. So. There's, there's the blood type to start with. And with that, you only have to match, um, generally in blood groups. So everybody, you've got your ABO blood type and you've also got positive negatives. The positive negative doesn't really matter. It's mostly the ABO blood type. So um, with my wife specifically, she's type A, which means that anybody who's type A or O, she could get their kidney. But again, if this is something you're interested in helping with, 
and you're a type B or a type AB, you could still do that paired exchange. So you could, you know, test, find out that you're perfectly healthy to give and they'll say, but you can't donate to Julie because she's type A. And then, you know, say, I'd like to do the paired exchange. They'll find somebody whose kidney would, you would match or whose, <laughs> who your kidney would match to really well. And you could start that whole chain along. Um, and even if the chain doesn't end specifically with my wife as the recipient, if you start a chain through your donation, my wife would get what's called a voucher, where as soon as a kidney that did match hers came up, she would be the first person that got the call on that kidney. So it, it's still helpful even if you don't end up giving to her. Like I said, I know this is a big ask. You know, it's a big thing to ask of people because... It's not a novel, I, a novel thing to just give away one of your major organs, but at least this is an organ that you've got a backup built in and it's not a traumatic thing to take away from you. Um, and asking in this community is just, you know, this community has always been great at coming together. It's been a very tight-knit community and when bad things happen to people, they reach out or the community just rallies around them and helps them with these things. Um, and Matthew's been great. He, he heard me on another podcast and he reached out to me just to give me one more place where I could talk to people and try and, you know, find somebody else that could add in. Um, you know, my 20 people that we have listening, there might be one in there. You never yeah, know. Right. <laughs> and you know, it, like I said, it just takes one person and, my goal is to try and help stack the deck. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm going through this process. Unfortunately, nobody in my wife's family is medically eligible. Um, her one sister is also diabetic. Her other sister has got some medical issues. Both of her parents have medical issues that would exclude them. So, you know, right now it's me and a couple of other friends in town that are going through it. But, you know, if we, if we bump that number up even by one or two people, then, there's a lot more likelihood that either one of or two of those other people will match or one or two of those other people will start this chain that could end up getting her the match that she needs. Um, so if you've listened to me through all of this and it sounds like something you'd be willing to do or wanting to know more information before you do go forward with it, you can reach out to me. Um, you can find me on Facebook, Travis Wyman. I'm not the motocross racer. So if you pull up Travis Wyman and you see a whole bunch of motorcycles and stuff, please don't contact him. I'm very sure he doesn't want to give up one of his kidneys. <laughs> he doesn't want your, kidney. um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm snakes underscore N underscore bakes. You could email me a S P L U N D I I at Gmail. That's a splundii at Gmail. Um, Matthew, reach out to him if you want. He can put you in touch with me. Um, yeah, Herp Talk Radio on Instagram, uh, Herp Talk Radio at gmail.com. Yeah. That's what we got right now. <laughs> <laughs> hey, those are those are great to have. <laughs> you know, it's, like I said, two more points of two more points of contact. Right. Um, I can, you know, if you're interested, I can send you a much more detailed listing of you know how to get the whole process started. If you're just curious and you want to know more about it before you jump off. I can talk to you about what I've been through. Um, the document that I've put together also has some like 
podcasts and YouTube videos and things like that that discuss the process and can give you more information. Um, if you don't want to talk to me just yet, but you want to try and learn more, if you find my Facebook page, I've got a post that my wife shared out on there that's discussing the whole thing too. It's got links in it that can show you how to get started. So those are all options as well. Um, like I said, I really appreciate, you know, Matthew for giving me the time. I appreciate everybody for listening. And if this is something that you want to do, like I said, please, please don't hesitate to reach out or think about it. Um, worst case scenario is that you end up being a perfect match for my wife and you change her life and my life by being able to donate a kidney to her. And the best case is that you're not a match to her, but you start one of these donor chains and you manage to change the lives of, you know, two people or four people or 10 people by being willing to become a living tissue donor. That's, that's the, the part that interests me the most is even excluding your situation there's another ninety thousand people out there you know yes. overall so well, like, and you're, like it's not your family friend like you said who's on dialysis maybe maybe they'll be you know somebody who's listening now will hear this and they'll they'll get tested and find out that they're not a match for my wife but they may be a match for that person right. and like i said that's that's one more life that you change if you can do that and that's just a great thing to you know, for me, that's a great thing to think about is, you know, even if my tests come back and they tell me that I'm not a match for my wife, I'm still staying on the list as a donor. And when my name gets called, I will go and I will let them take my kidney because I want to help somebody. And in a way, I'm paying it forward in the hopes that somebody will be able to help us, too. That's that's awesome that you're still willing to go through with it, too. I didn't know about the the donor program that you were talking about, but that is interesting for sure. Yeah, it's and helpful. I'm sure it's helped a whole bunch of people already. I'm, I'm, I know that it has. Um, and yeah, it, the living donor network is not, it's not broadly known outside of people who find themselves in this situation. I, I didn't even know about it until, you know, a couple of months ago when, my wife's kidney function tests came back as hitting that, you know, tip point to failure. And we, we dug in hard and deep to find out what we could. So, uh, Peggy, how are the turtles? Well, they're doing good. I'm still perplexed as to what I'm uh, seeing in these roadkills compared to, um, other rescues. Um, the roadkills seem to produce the morphs. And uh, maybe our geneticist today can tell me if there's a heat um, situation going on or anoxia situation. Um, it's just, you know, it's, it, and the morph is growing so slow, both of them are compared to the others, that um, we'll just <coughs> get some possible speculation on all that. Right on. <laughs> there's really, other than the one episode last week without you, which was really difficult. We got to talk <laughs> about finding a fill-in for you because no. that's really hard to find. Um, oh. <laughs> yeah, well, there's not much has changed here. Um, okay. Anyway. Uh, well, not not anything. I mean, no, not uh, really. You're uh, no new snake or lizard well, or 
children playing with him in ways they haven't done yet before. (laughs) No baby mice, no baby rats. Everything stopped. So that's kind of boring over here. Oh, okay. (laughs) Well, let's Um, see what our guest has to say. (laughs) Tonight we have a... We have Dr. Travis Wyman with us. Um, So, Dr. Wyman, how did you get into reptiles? And then how do you... Well, let's start there. All right. Well, I got into reptiles when I was five um, on the playground at the preschool. I found a baby garter snake and, you know, just reached down, picked it up brought it into the classroom with me and the teacher let me keep it. Although I had to put it in a jar and keep it away from everybody else (laughs) until they could talk to my parents about the fact that I wanted to keep the snake. Um, (laughs) Then my parents let me keep it. You know, I kept it in a little fishbowl with like a wooden plank on top to keep it inside. (laughs) had it for a few days in there. And then my parents, you know, told me that I had to let it go. I remember letting it go and being very depressed and upset about it. In fact, I, I vividly remember drawing a picture of me letting the snake go and crying while doing it. Oh, because that (laughs) I was about the fact that I had to let this snake go. Um, and that pretty much hooked me, um, throughout the rest of my, you know, formative years i was you know out in the field hitting the neighborhood pond catching the snakes uh tiger salamanders um i found a spot up near my bus stop where we had western fence lizards and i would go out and catch those Hmm. um you know i would whenever i'd go down to visit my aunt at her place which was you know really rural and just open area she had a horse farm i would go out and herp out in there and find bull snakes and things. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't really get serious about keeping until I was about 14 or so. Um, it's when I bought my first actual pet animal with my own money. Um, <laughs> it was a, it was an amel corn, um, it was $150. I remember that clearly. Wow. $150 is a lot of money to a 14-year-old. Yeah. Um, and that really was the hook with me. Uh, I kept him, you know, all the way through junior high, through high school, through college, um, moving to Atlanta, if anybody's mm-hmm. from Georgia and you're with the DNR there, I didn't, you didn't hear me say that. Of course, snakes aren't legal in Georgia, which I didn't find out until about a week before I was moving out of Georgia. So, oh, wow. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but, you know, made it through my, you know, graduate school, getting married, having a kid, moving from Georgia to Maryland, getting divorced, and about a month before I moved down here to move into this house with my now second wife, uh, he passed away. So he was oh. 27 years old when oh, that my. happened. Oh, nice. So 
That's a very important lesson for all of you people who want to get into reptiles is make sure you know what you're getting into because, you know, unlike yes. cats and dogs, these do last a long time. Yeah. Um, so yeah. be ready for it. And, yeah. you know, 27 years for a cord snake is probably on the upper end. Um, well, it's definitely on the upper end because the only guy I knew who had significantly older animals than that his were like 29, 30 years old, and he lost his because he had a house fire. But it's not often you hear people talking about having animals that are that old. No. Um, yeah. But, you know, cord snakes are actually kind of on the low end for some of these animals. Uh, you know, ball pythons, there are documented ball pythons that are like 70 years old in zoos oh, and stuff. Wow. <laughs> so, nice. you know, again, know what you're getting into. These, mm -hmm. these aren't you know, one, two, five-year pets. These these can last a long time. Mm -hmm. um, but like I said, that's that that cord snake was one. He got me really into it. Um, I only had him for a long time until about two thousand five, six, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, and that was when I realized, you know, well, one I discovered the fantastic world of reptile expos in Atlanta. Um, <laughs> I also made friends with uh, some guys at Atlanta Botanical who, in addition to being plant guys, were also very involved with, you know, herps. Uh, they were more frog guys, but one of the guys there also kept green tree pythons. And we were just chatting one day and I, you know, I mentioned that I was thinking about expanding my collection to start getting other animals that I really wanted. And when I mentioned green tree pythons, he said, you know, I've got an animal that I'm not going to be working with. Would you be interested in her? And I was like, well, hell yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So that, that was my second snake. Um, and she's still kicking around upstairs in a cage. She's 21 this year, 22 this year. Um, you know, after that, I picked up a, Gray banded king snake because that was another one of those ones that I remember seeing in the Audubon Society Guide and thinking I really really want one of these one day and mm -hmm. then when I realized I was an adult and one day was now I could have these things I I picked one of those up and it just kind of spun up from there. Um, now my collection is about half ball pythons which I keep because they're a good outlet for me to play with the genetic side of my. Mm -hmm. my interests and my formal education and career. Um, it allows me to bring my work home with me without actually bringing my work home with me. Cause my <laughs> work definitely doesn't, does not want to come home. Well, you don't want my work to come home with me. <laughs> yeah. um, and then the other half of my collection is just various other species that really intrigue me. And I'm interested in them for what they are and the way they behave or the unique adaptations they have to their environments and things like that. So I've got rubber boas, um, you know, just little brown dirt snakes that nobody cares about because they're little brown dirt snakes and they, you know, you don't see them most of the time, but I find them just positively fascinating. Um, hmm. The fact that they, you know, can hibernate six months out of the year. There, there's speculation that they're probably one of the longest lived snake species out there, and that would make sense if you turn off six months out of the year. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, 
I have Calabar Bowrain Boas, which is basically the African equivalent of the rubber boa. Um, they're really cool for the same kind of reasons. You know, they're completely underground, but they're not because I see mine doing all kinds of weird behaviors. You just kind of catch them at the right time. They're also rather awesomely unique because they have some of the toughest skin in the snake world. Mm-hmm. Um, their their skin is a is has been equated to being rhino skin basically with how durable it is um mm-hmm. and that's an adaptation to because they're nest raiders they have to be able to deal with being bitten by adult rodents and so they've got these really heavy duty scales that can basically just deflect the bite of an adult rodent that's trying yeah. to bite you to keep you away from eating the babies i mm-hmm. thought about getting into those uh when I was in before this time around anyway, because uh, I kept Samboas and I do enjoy keeping a tray of dirt and it's kind of fun. Uh. Yeah, it is. I mean, I've got, I have an eight foot cage and it's, it's got a 1.2 trio in it. And yeah, most of the time it's just dirt and plants that you see. But every once in a while, like I said, uh, I've got, you know, branches and logs and things. Um, the other night I caught one of my animals perched head down <laughs> over one of the spots where I will place trays full of rat pups when I'm feeding. As a hint, so hint. it's like he decided he was hungry and that's, he was just going to wait there and hang head down mm-hmm. and wait for something to come by. Um, wow. Like a green tree. And I'm sure if I had any rat pups at the time and I'd thrown one in, he would have just pounced on it. But to mm-hmm. see, you know, a traditional ground boa mm-hmm. perched up on a little, you know, stump getting ready to attack is pretty cool to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I like that too, is, um, being, um, a behavioral biologist as you know, as well as the, the other fields I worked in. So you, you catch yourself doing that a lot too, then. I do. Um, one of my other, like for interesting behaviors, I keep, uh, two different species of beaked snakes and the, they are one of the more intelligent species that I have worked with, and I'm actually have been slowly working on target training them because oh. they're very visually oriented. Nice. And I've I've taken to using a green laser pointer, and I've got one now where I can, you know, I open the cage, and she may come out and check, but if she doesn't see anything from me, she immediately ducks her head back down. But if I'm mm flash the laser pointer she -hmm. goes to where i flash the laser pointer and then (laughs) i will put the food down and she will just immediately pounce on top of it um i have the other species he's he's a little bit high strung and he cues in on the laser but then he like he sees me coming in with the food and instead of cueing where the laser is, he just comes tearing at me because he knows that I have the food. So I need to get him to calm down a little bit and get to the point where the, where the laser is, is where the food's going to go and stop trying to throw yourself out of the cage. Mm-hmm. Cool. So um, how many snakes do you have now then? <sighs> how many species? <laughs> Okay, let's go. Oh, with God, that's that's going to be even more hard for me to remember. <laughs> um, so I've got the rubber boas, the calabars, uh, black milk, gray banded king, bread lie, two ramphiophis, oligodon, pseudaspis, uh, chondro, 
scrub python there's 12 and then the ball pythons that's 13 i think i think that's it yeah oh uh hog nose 14. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay so now in all your genetics work have you ever had any reptile um well e even uh scientific paper written and authored by you um even if it's you know just biology related not specific genetics nothing um in genetics or reptiles uh i have some publications from i took a year between college and grad school because a lot of friends that i had in grad school or uh, they were a year ahead of me and they went into grad school programs mm -hmm. and every one of them washed out in their first year oh. so <laughs> i was I was concerned that maybe there was something about, you know, that grad school research oriented direction mm -hmm. that I didn't really know about. And so I took a year off to work in a lab to make sure that research was really what I wanted to do. Oh. Um, I was working in a blood lab looking at transfusion related acute lung injury mm. um, and the cell biology, you know, the white blood cells and tissue cells behind that. Mm -hmm. And I've got about a half dozen papers from that time. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Um, and then I've got the ones that I put out when I was in grad school for my thesis. Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you've seen that in your collection or with other reptile keepers that you say, there should be a paper on that? <laughs> oh, constantly, constantly. <laughs> um, you know, there's this huge conflict sort of between the academia and the hobby side of mm -hmm. reptile keeping that is very frustrating for me to see as both, you know, a keeper breeder and as, you know, a scientist who, while I'm not in academia proper, I still, you know, I still read, you know, the scientific journals and things. And mm -hmm. I think both sides could learn from the other, but both oh, sides yes. are so entrenched in believing that they know better than what the other side knows mm. um, that you get sort of this like elitist and less than mentality between the two, you know, mm -hmm. hobbyists think that they know more because they're actually keeping and watching and observing these behaviors all the time, day in, day out, which, you know, true zoos don't see and most academics don't see because they're setting up artificial experiments to see things. Mm -hmm. So they think they're, they know better and they know more than the science, the actual sciencey folks, but then the science folks think that they know more because they're doing it according to, you know, the very structured linear boxed in, you know, by the book. standard, uh, right. standard significance and, you know, control models with and everything. And so mm -hmm. then they look down on the hobbyist side and both. So both sides are artificially elevating themselves while also artificially depressing the other side. And yes, I yeah. think both sides would benefit from, you know, both more open communication between them. Um, but it's a lot harder for the hobbyists to do that because there's kind of that barrier of, you know, well, how do I get published in a peer reviewed journal when peer reviewed journals only want something from institutions and I'm not an institution. I'm just, you know, right. guy in basement, but I've had <laughs> this, you know, I've had this species 
that nobody else really works with. And I've observed all these behaviors over all these years. And I could write a little, you know, blurb on their biologies and behaviors and stuff, at least in my conditions. And mm -hmm. it could be really relevant information. Right. Um, well, it would certainly help. But them. where do I put it? You know, yeah. and then uh -huh. it gets put in something like, you know, Reptiles Magazine or when, uh, when Justin was running the Herpeticulture magazine, you know, it gets put in something like that, which then the scientists guys are like, well, but that's just like a hobby thing and hobby things. They're not, they're not legitimate. So why do we care? Right. Well, th that's one thing. I think the hobbyists find a question that the science community can answer. I mean, right now amongst the hobbyists uh, in turtles, there's a lot of um, biologists that, you know, are also turtle hobbyists. And, um, so yeah, I'm curious, I, I find this, um, roadkill clutch and, you know, and out comes that clown and four dead clowns and five normal phenotypes. I incubated at 82 thinking I'm going to have all males because we're seeing a lot, you know, from the papers I've been reading there of the actual scientists studying painted turtles. They said that, um, they're seeing some wild clowns show up, um, or, you know, you know, hype, what they called hypomelanism, um, based on, and less, uh, males based on the temperatures now mostly causing female hatches. So I incubated at 82. Um, but yet, um, everyone says, well, if you have a clown, it's a female and then it will take seven years to mature before you decide or before it shows you what it is. <laughs> <laughs> and so I figured I started a question because now on some of these lists, the biologist is saying it's purely genetic. And some of them are saying, no, it's, it's an epigenetic switch due to heat extremes in the, of the nest. And, and so I'm like, okay, wow, now, now we can generate some papers here. <laughs> and, and I just didn't know if you were seeing, you know, some scientists, I mean, the university I went through, they're always combing for, you know, what can, what research can we find? For questions that are out there and i would think there there's a lot in the the snake and lizard communities too yeah i'm i mean there are there are countless questions that um that the hobby side can come up with the big problem that happens there and i think both sides have frustration with it it's probably a very similar frustration but the the true science side understands that like without the actual funding, mm -hmm. it's real hard. You know, like I can't just take whatever project I want and run with it in my lab because the money that I get through grants and through institutional awards and things like that is given to me or given to us any specific scientist under a very strict set of rules of what they can spend it on. Right. So you can't just take money that was allotted for, um, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to use Warren Booth as an example, because he's, he's another scientist that I really know. And I know some of his work other than the parthenogenesis stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, Warren specifically works with like pest species, like bed bugs and, um, urban insect populations and things. So mm -hmm. the money that he's awarded for that, he can't use that oh, yeah. bed bug money on his snake studies. Right. His snake studies, he had to go out and find other sources of uh, 
cash flow to then look at parthenogenesis and snakes and stuff. And as he got more known for that, then he was able to get more money for that more easily. But, you know, that took a lot of hard work and dedication on Warren's part to even scrape together the first bit of money that he could to start looking at those. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I've had people jokingly say to me, like, well, why can't I just send you my snake shed and you do, do the thing? It's like, well, because, you know, there's a very strict set of rules that I'm under and, you know, misappropriation of government funds <laughs> is a very bad thing. And, yeah. you know, that would get me fired. <laughs> and, and then some. <laughs> yeah, and then some. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. like, while while the, the hobbyists can come up with all of these questions, and a lot of them are very, very good questions, mm-hmm. It's not just as simple as, well, I came up with the question. Why aren't you guys answering it? Right. It's like, OK, it's great that you came up with the question, but I'm going to need, you know, 50,000, 150,000, 300,000, depending on the nature of the question involved, you know, mm-hmm. to actually do that study. Where am I supposed to get that money? Uh-huh. And yeah. it's it's very frustrating to that the hobbyists just don't seem to realize right. that. And, um, and yeah. most universities now um, are getting corporate monies who want to monetize their discoveries. Um, and I know in the ag school that I know of, um, uh, a CEO became president of the school and there, there w- was to be no studies on the harmful effects of pesticides, of course, you know, because that would step on a lot, a lot of toes. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, I, I just didn't know if you breeders of pythons and boas, if you um, are really working with ARC, because I really see that, you know, they're really, you know, because of what's happened in Florida, they're really trying to uh, limit your access, you know, for um, your, your hobby. And some are even talking about confiscations. Has that affected you where you are? It hasn't affected me where I am. Um, I'm up in Virginia, so I'm I'm lucky in that Virginia tends to be kind of one of those wild west states. <laughs> in as much as the rules the rules here aren't super crazy. Um, now they have gotten they have gotten a little bit more strict on uh, on native species mm-hmm. um, and not wanting people to you know have those because it's a matter of protecting the native species and they want to make sure people aren't poaching them out of the wild. But that said, like they're not shutting down all corn snakes, you know, because they recognize that there's all these different corn snakes and morphs and stuff, but you know, other things, you know, if I wanted to get an Eastern hog nose, I, I think the window has closed for me on that. Mm. Um, now I could probably, you know, talk to DNR and find out if there's ways if I get permits and I show that it's captive bred from somebody else that, you know, there might be ways to do that. But I'm I'm not overly interested in going that down that rabbit hole. So. Mm-hmm. So, so far, I'll just leave you, that species off my list for me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so far, you don't have to have permits to keep and um, and breed and and such. No, not for any of the things that I have. Um, I think I think there's venomous regulations here, but again, I don't think they're super tight. 
And since I don't keep venomous, it was never something that I bothered to look into. And yeah, I, I, I haven't seen any, any real hardcore regulation here, but you know, mm-hmm. Georgia, you're not allowed to have any native species. So you can't oh. have cord snakes down there. Um, he, and like no yeah. morphs, no nothing. Wow. You know, they they wow. don't sell corn snakes in in petcos and stuff down there because that's how that's how Georgia is. Uh, it's like this, it's the same way with Colorado and hognose snakes because okay. hognose snakes are native to Colorado. Nobody in Colorado can have hognose. Snakes. I didn't know that. That's, yeah, that's good that, to know. Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there's also I think there's also a venomous regulation in Colorado, which which blocks them too because they're they're rear fanged. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, we uh, we're up in South Dakota and, you know, redneck state, <laughs> um, fourth generation one here. Um, and uh, when I called to ask, uh, you know, I, you know, I, I called to say, well, I, I found this in the wild. What do I do about this? Because even though we have we're permitted to take painted turtles, but, you know, now I'm going to have six possible babies of intact because of the, the eggs that were still intact out of the, or excuse me, no, 10 that were still intact out of the 16 with that roadkill. And I wanted to, you know, I used to work for game fish and parks. One of my degrees is in wildlife and fisheries management. And so I wanted to make sure I was dotting on my eyes and they go, well, you can't, um, uh, buy any turtles. And, and I said, um, you mean the ones you, you can't sell the turtles that we collect in the wild, nor buy them from people who have collected from the wild. No, no, you can't buy any turtles from anybody anywhere. I went, oh, well, that's not clear in the fisheries handbook. <laughs> you know, then I said, if that's the case, then how can PetSmart and Petco sell turtles? And they go, well, they must have a special permit. And then then I fired back up, do the buyers have a special permit? <laughs> and they go, yeah. oh, <laughs> they go, oh. <laughs> Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's you know, one of those probably weird things. Yeah, you know, and they might just be thinking of the four inch rule where, you know, because you were talking about baby turtles, they're just thinking, well, no, you can't buy baby turtles, so it doesn't matter. And petcos don't sell the baby turtles. You know, right. everything at Petco is gonna be six inches or so. So Yeah. What they decided to do with me though is give me a scientific collector's permit and then network with them as far as putting the babies where the female would have where they would have crawled you know, that water body had the female deposited. Had the female survived. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, but, you know, then I bought four turtles from the turtle source. So, uh, yeah, (laughs) you know, before (laughs) I talked to them. (laughs) So, I mean, it's, it's just, I, I just don't know that if, um, you know, wondered what you were going through in the States that you had lived before and, you know, as far as keeping abreast of all the turtle regs with breeding, so many. I was happily ignorant. Um, <laughs> through, like, you know, when I lived in Colorado, I, you know, when you're 14, you don't care. You just buy the snake out of the pet store and you're good. Yeah. Um, like I said, when I moved to Atlanta, I, it was before, you know, rules and regulations were really a big deal. So I didn't think anything of it when I packed up and moved my corn snake with me. Um, and then, like I said, when I, when I was leaving Georgia, um, you know, things had started happening with regulations and stuff coming into place. And so I did email up to the Virginia DNR and I asked them about, you know, 
these are the species that I have. Is there anything I need to worry about? And I said, you know, specifically, I'm worried about my corn snake because I know that they're native up there. And the woman said, nope, you, you don't have anything to worry about. She said, you know, do you have any other native animals? I said, well, I have a U.S. native animal, but it's not native to Georgia and or it's not native to Virginia, Maryland. Mm-hmm. And they said, OK, we don't care then. Oh, interesting. <laughs> um, but then, yeah. But then she closed out. She's like, how do you have a corn snake in Georgia, because those are illegal there. And I went, uh, well, I guess it's good. I'm moving. <laughs> yeah. You know, the, yeah, we, we think about, you know, moving to a better economy out of South Dakota. And uh, right away I said, well, let me know, Joel, what you're thinking of, because I have to check the turtle laws before we move. <laughs> you know, and he goes, really? <laughs> and so, yeah, I mean, it's just now that I'm, you know, uh, now that I'm concerned about that, but you know, I'm working with their biologists and I answer all their questions. And so, yeah, I was naive about how they were interpreting that law. So what do you have now um, genetically that you're breeding that you're excited about? Um, all of my genetic stuff is uh, just my ball pythons. And my my passion with them is albino. I've always been an albino fanatic. I guess you know I bought that al- that Amel corn when I was fourteen. Um, you know I I just I really like that white and yellow, white and red. Mm-hmm. But I like the red eyes. That really appeals to me. So a lot of the projects that I'm working towards in my ball pythons are just changing the color the depth of contrast and stuff, the patterning in albinos. Um, and then I have other just little side projects that I find interesting for other reasons. I, I find myself really drawn to stripes. So I'm working mm-hmm. with a lot of the genetic stripe, red stripe stuff to, you know, make really stripy animals. Oh, okay. Interesting. Um, Are you- I also like darker things. So mm-hmm. my albino projects, I'm leaning hard into dark morphs because when you make dark and al- you know an albino dark it gives a lot more contrast between that white and that yellow usually mm-hmm. and if you don't hit the albino and you just end up with the het you still end up with these really nice dark you know morphs you know which i think mm-hmm. look really cool cool and are you doing any trading with other breeders or are you just working on your own stock I I will trade if people are open to trade. Mostly, like I I breed for what I want. If I hit it in the clutch, great. Then that's the animal or animals that I keep back, and then what's left over, I try and sell off. Um, I'll wholesale a bunch of stuff just because I'm not like I'm not doing this to try and make money or make a business out of it. Mm-hmm. It's it's more just for fun for me. Um, it's nice when. I can bring a little bit of money in to help pay for, you know, help the, the pay the rat bill, yeah. uh, help, help buy new cages for snakes that aren't, you know, ball pythons and stuff. Mm-hmm. But it's, it's not something that I'm driving hard. You know, I'm not pushing on my social media 10,000 times a week, all the different things that I have. I've got a Mork market account. I keep my things added in there, but it's mm-hmm. just more for convenience to be able to sell off there than, you know, I don't do shows cause I just, I don't have it in me to, 
deal. I, you know, as with most scientists, I have a very introverted bent to me. <laughs> so my, my mindset, you know, I, I'm great talking to people over the, over the computer all day long, but if I have to talk to people in person all day long, I would probably have a psychotic break and then just need to curl up in a closet and stay there for a week. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think those of us, um, what was it? The actor that played Sheldon on the big bang, they ask uh, Jim Parsons, the actor he goes, how do you think Sheldon would have handled this, this uh, COVID pandemic? And he goes, Oh, he'd be thriving. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of You what, just get to yeah. stay home and you don't have to deal with anybody. <laughs> yeah. So how, how do you you started with a corn snake so genetically corn snakes are very variable why did you switch to ball pythons then where where did that happen and why um i don't know i you know like i said i discovered the the reptile expo scene at in atlanta um my my now ex-wife when we were there just looking around at stuff she found a bin full of just bush babies that were like 10 bucks. And I had always wanted just a, a ball python because I thought they were kind of cool. So we picked up that ball python. And I guess when I started looking more into ball pythons at that time is when, you know, kind of the first wave of morphs and things were going on. Mm. And there was just a lot of new and unusual there versus the corn steak scene had already kind of had its source sort of first boom and was sort of on the downward trend um, before they've, I mean, they're starting to come back up again, but just, I guess the newness and the variety with the ball pythons kind of appealed to me more than the corn snakes, which already seemed to hit their plateau to me. And so yeah, it just, I fell into the ball pythons a little bit more. Well, albino corn snakes were found in the fifties. So yeah. Yeah. The albino ball python was what the nineties. So. Um, I think it was the eighties, late eighties, but may have been early nineties. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Yeah. So that makes sense. That. Are you finding that your morphs, the more genes that you add for variation beyond the wild, are are they as strong of individuals as the wild types, or do you really have to watch it when you stack mutations in a breed line? Um, I'm not seeing anything radically catastrophic. Um, I do think, I do think we are seeing some degree of inbreeding depression in ball pythons because a lot of the breeders are more than happy to breed, you know, mother to son or father to daughter, mm -hmm. you know, sibling to sibling. It just seems to be a very, very common thing. And I think that does account for some of the uh you know less than ideal clutch sizes that we see or like we'll get somebody will get a clutch of uh babies with underdeveloped jaws and things um now part of that could just be that we have a lot of people who have very limited knowledge just cranking out and breeding and cranking out and breeding and so they're getting less than ideal incubation and breeding conditions to start with mm -hmm. um but like I have five, six, seven gene animals, and they're just as robust as my, you know, my wild type that I still have kicking around. You know, they eat as well as he does. They grow. They're, you know, mm -hmm. 
Mm. They're just as solid and strong and fine. Um, There are some morphs that have inherent issues with the morph there. You know, we look at the primary side effect as being these pattern and colored mutations. Mm -hmm. Um, But there are the secondary side effects, you know, the, the neuro syndromes, the, uh, tendency towards duck billing or kinking things like that Mm. um and those if you pair up the wrong combinations of those you can get much much worse effects so there's like a whole cluster of related alleles Mm -hmm. um where in four or five at least four of the possibly five of them, the homozygous form is lethal. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there are other alleles in that group where the homozygous form is not lethal, but some of them will show that sort of neuronal tick. Um, and if you combine one of the lethal ones, one of the lethal homozygous oh, gene, just the individual gene for that with one of the less problematic ones, you tend to see a little bit more extreme expression but again it's not mm-hmm. it's not always pure lethality so i don't know how familiar with pyth- ball pythons you, morphs you are but like the spider is the big one yeah the homozygous spider is lethal and that is something that myself and a number of others had been telling people for years and we were being told that we didn't know what we were talking about because the guy who originally brought spider to market said that there were never any problems and you know he obviously knew more now he's not a genetics person he was never a genetics person and he was more a breeder seller and so of course mm-hmm. he was going to say whatever he needed to say to sell the animals and having people believe that a super was lethal he felt was problematic so he just didn't talk about it um mm-hmm. if you take spider and breed it to some of these other ones that have in the group spider hidden gene woma woma champagne if you breed those together you get dead animals again wow. um, for the same reason. Mm-hmm. But then some of them, like you can breed a spider to a cypress or a sable, and you just get a more, an animal that's more prone to showing the neuro behavior, oh. but it's not lethal. Um, mm-hmm. Although some people have indicated that some of these combos have like failure to thrive issues where, the, ba- the babies just don't grow. They don't establish. They don't live past two or three years. Mm-hmm. So Dude. they are they're ultimately lethal, but it's a long term lethal versus they die in the egg or before egg development can really get going. So are you keeping a, a stud book kind of, um, you know, to like this cross with this cross yielded this must avoid this cross, you know, um, instead use that sort of thing? I <laughs> I have that mostly in my head. Um I do have my my breedings um logged down every year, mm-hmm. you know, and I know who in my colony is related to who and I generally am not breeding, you know, mother to I well, I cannot think of a single time I've done mother to daughter or mother to son or father to daughter. Mm-hmm. Um about the closest I've got would it be grand yeah they would share like a grandparent so they would have the same grandfather as it were but they would have you know separate grandmothers separate mothers and separate 
Mm-hmm. So they would just share one common ancestor. So I guess that would kind of make them cousins. second cousins or something. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. You had a question? It was on the neuro stuff and the spider jag, jag and carpets. It's the same. Okay. It, it, it's suspected that jag is probably the same. Um, you know, it's, it's because there's a similarity in how the mutations present themselves. So you see a reduction in the black patterning and enhancing in the gold patterning. You see an alteration to the eye color. Both of them have that neurologic head tick behavior. So it's very likely that they are affecting the same pathway, um, whether it's an identical gene. Mm -hmm. We don't know because we don't have that capacity yet. Uh, mm-hmm. I suspect we probably will within the next couple, three years, the way that Hannah and Ben have been working towards these things. Um, but mm-hmm. who knows? And uh, I, I listened to your talk um, on, uh, let's see, it was um, Evan Aldrich on his Strength of Leo's podcast, where you really went in some great detail about um, the layers. Uh, it, there aren't just a switched off total gene. It switches off of, um, the pathway to build the process. Um, and you specifically went into melanism and, you know, it just, I go, Oh yeah, I'm seeing oh, that. In, in I've this heard class. you talk about that somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so it's, <laughs> this is, this is the science nerd in me that goes into these things. Um, with the hobby, you know, like the hobby is very much oriented on thinking that, you know, a gene causes something and it's, it's kind of like a light switch sort of. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's not really how genes work. Um, it, they're about gradients of expression and stuff. So like, yeah, there's an on and off like a light switch, but it's more like a faucet. Mm-hmm. You know, if I turn it on and it's only on a little bit, I get a trickle. If I turn it on full blast, I get a torrent. And there's a lot of in between. And there are ways that the products from other genes can regulate how hard or soft you're turning that faucet on. Mm-hmm. and how that gene that you're looking at, how hard and soft it gets turned on, can affect how other things happen. And you also have then stepwise chains or pathways for how things get built and put together. So like with the melanism, it all starts with an enzyme called tyrosinase, which is not just involved in melanin synthesis, it's involved in a whole bunch of other different pathways too. Mm-hmm. But the only one we care about is melanin synthesis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you break tyrosinase, you can't start the whole pathway of melanin synthesis. Mm-hmm. So then the pathway doesn't start, so you get no melanin, and that's why your animals lack any black pigment. Mm-hmm. But if you have tyrosinase, but then you break the gene that works on the second step or the third step or the fourth step, you start to produce melanin but now you can't produce it at the same concentrations at the same high levels. And so that's what gives you things like your, your caramel albinos, your lavender albinos and stuff, because they're still producing melanin. It's just a 
minuscule levels compared to the wild type, so you get less melanization to them. Would that be um, like T positive then? Yes, okay. that would be T positive. That's what the T in T positive and T negative stands for is tyrosinase. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you can only have one type of T negative albino because that's the very first step. If you break tyrosinase, you've broken that gene. But then all the other steps in the process, each of those steps is a different type of T positive mutation. Mm-hmm. So that's why you can combine like caramel and ultramel and end up with the I can't even remember what it's called, the caramello or something, because those are two different types of T positive. And when you combine them together, you just have a double T positive. But if I take a caramel and an albino, it just looks like an albino because I've broken the tyrosinase. So it doesn't matter what happens along the rest of the chain because the chain is broken at the very beginning. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, if your, if your car you know, if if you rip the ignition out of a car, mm-hmm. the car is never going to start. Right. So it doesn't matter if I rip the ignition out of the car and also tear the tires off the car and crack the cylinder head. It doesn't matter because I can't start the car. Gotcha. Now, if I can start the car, but I tear the tires off, the, tire, <laughs> the car's not going to drive well, but it can still drive. Mm-hmm. Right. If I crack the cylinder head, the car's not going to drive well, but it can still drive. If I crack the cylinder head and break the tires... You're going to have more problems, but the car could still drive. But if you can't even start the car, who cares? So why we were on the albino subject, we might be, uh, what about the paradox situation? What's going on with the Kenyan sand boa then? And why is that genetically somewhat heritable? Or seems okay, to be? so paradoxing is one of these fun things that drives people crazy. And they want to know why you can't do it when you can do it with other animals. Um, so the Paradoxing, I will start with the term paradox in the hobby is a bastard term. It has no legitimate scientific value or credence anywhere. You know, no actual geneticist will talk about a paradox genetics. Um, So first wrap your head around that, and then that gives you at least a bit more understanding that what you're dealing with is something that's just anomalous and trying to figure out why it's anomalous and then help you better understand why it's generally not heritable. Um, In most cases that we see what it is, is it's a result of either chimerism or mosaicism. Um, And those are basically two fancy ways of ending up with the same thing through different routes. Uh, So a genetic mosaic animal is one that gives you two different phenotypes, but the genetics from the, that cause it are from within the same animal. So Mm. we see that when, you know, like a subset of cells divides and if they divide improperly and you get, the chromosomes shift over so Mm -hmm. that whereas normally you get one copy of each chromosome in each cell as it divides, well, maybe you end up taking two of one chromosome into one, which means the other cell has none. And if that other cell that has none was carrying a gene like a pigment gene, Mm -hmm. now you've got a cell that has no pigment genes. And if that's a precursor stem cell type thing, 
all the cells that it then generates have no pigments, pigment gene. So then you get these patches of non-pigmentation. But genetically, those cells have the same origin, the pigmented ones and the non-pigmented ones. Mm-hmm. Um, coming back to the mosaic thing, it's not the best example, but one that's really easy for people to picture is calico cats. Okay. Now, calico cats have got basically black and orange coloration to them. Genetically, those cats are the same all the way through. They don't have different cells that make them orange in the orange areas and different cells that make them black in the black areas. It's just that certain chromosomes are turned on or off in those regions, depending on, you know, mm-hmm. big science stuff that you know, we don't have to get into here. But mm-hmm. genetically, those cats, every cell in that cat's body is the same and it comes from the same, you know, the same place. Mm-hmm. Now, a chimera is a situation where you have, the most common is where you basically get like a Siamese twin situation, but instead of splitting apart, the two twins come together and get absorbed. Mm-hmm. And if those are two genetically different animals, like one of them is an albino and the other is not, then you have two completely different populations of cells that make up that animal. And some of those are going to be normal pigmented and some of those are going to be albino pigmented or some of those will be normal pigmented and some of those would have the spider patterning to them. And so you get these weird areas that have different pattern or different color. Um, And that's actually a lot more common throughout the animal kingdom, throughout the human population than you might initially think. But the reason you don't normally see it is because, you know, by and large, people don't walk around with these massive color and pattern mutations that we see in snakes. So it gets, it gets ridiculously amplified in, you know, in the reptile hobby because we're specifically selecting for, pattern and color mutations so when we get the when we get these extremely weird cases where you get a chimera it's flagrantly obvious um Hmm. but it's happened in you know in people there was there are famously a couple of court cases where like a woman was accused of having stolen babies Hmm. because her children were not testing as being genetically hers and it wasn't just like one kid it she had three kids and none of them tested the same as hers and at the same time she was pregnant and they delivered the child and genetically tested the child like right there in the hospital and so they had all of the doctors and everybody's eyes on the child and that child that she delivered that was witnessed by all the people in the delivery room mm-hmm. did not test as being genetically related to her And what it was, was one of these same situations where she had a fraternal twin that was also female Mm -hmm. and was absorbed. And that that twin basically became the internal organs of her body. So when they were swiping her cheek, they were getting her genetics, but the tissue that made up her ovaries and thus was giving the genetic component to her children right belonged to the other twin yeah yeah, the the twin that she had absorbed and made part of her Mm -hmm. so that that was why her none of her children were technically genetically hers wow because they were 
technically her sister, but her sister was her. Right. Um, <laughs> and there are, there are, there are, there have been a number of cases where something like that has come up. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, so that's what chimerism is. Mm-hmm. Now, then we get the thing thrown into the works. Well, you know, let me rewind a little bit before I get into the, the, the Kenyan sandbows. Um, if you think about how those work, then you can see why they're not genetically heritable mm-hmm. because neither of those situations really is a case where, you know, you can pass that on. You may, you cannot pass on genetically a tendency to have a twin that you absorb and thus end up with two different sets of genetics in your body. Okay. And that's not something that you can just pass on. So you don't tend to see that. Mm-hmm. Um, this is why I said the calico cat thing doesn't work perfectly because that one you can breed calico cats. Um, yeah. Well, that, that, that segues nicely into the, the Kenyan sandboa thing. Um, <laughs> well, it, so the reason calico and cats works is because all calico cats are female. Mm-hmm. And that's also not a true statement, but it's a basically true statement. 99.99% of calico cats are females. And the reason that that is, is because the gene for color pigmentation for black, the black pigmentation is on the X chromosome. Mm-hmm. Oh. And so females have two X chromosomes. Now, the same with humans with two X chromosomes, the males have the X and the Y chromosome. Now, if you think about it logically, if the males only have one X chromosome and females have two X chromosomes, that means all females would have twice the genetic payload mm-hmm. of an X right. that the male would have, which evolutionarily would be problematic because if all the females in the species are exhibiting a double load of every gene Mm -hmm. that could lead to problematic expression of things, or if the males can't produce that amount. So evolution has come up with ways to basically balance how that X is expressed between both sexes. Mm Mm-hmm. And how it works in humans and how it works in cats is that randomly, one of those X chromosomes is completely packaged down so that it's silenced and none of its genes work. Wow. So if you have a cat that has a chromosome that has the gene for black on it, on one X, and a chromosome that doesn't have the gene for black on the other X, then depending on which one is active... Mm-hmm. is going to depend on which part of the cat is expressing black or not black. Mm-hmm. So that is heritable in as much as if I breed, if I breed a black male to a black female or to a calico female, you're not really going to have that. Um, you're not going to have a situation well, you'll have half of the, the cats in that will get the double dose of black. Mm-hmm. So they'll always have black, 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 black. Mm-hmm. And you'll get the male that donates a black and the female that donates the non-black. Mm-hmm. So then the other half of the females could be calicos. Yeah, gotcha. But if you have a male who only is, you know, orange, he mm-hmm. can't donate a black. So now you get females who can get orange and black, orange from the male and black from the, mo- the mother. And those become calicos mm-hmm. or you get the orange from the male and the non-black from the female. So then those are just automatically orange. Um, 
Now, something similar is probably happening with Kenyan sand boas. And I say sim- something similar <laughs> because obviously it's not just an X-linked thing like that where it's turned on and off because both sexes in Kenyan sand boas can be paradoxic. Right. And what, well, and it's also not an albinism gene in cats that we're dealing with. And it is an albinism type gene that we're dealing with in uh, the Kenyan sand boas. Mm. Um, the easiest explanation I have, and this is not, you know, this is not me saying this is the absolute. This is just a very easy way that I can explain it. Um, there is a pigmentation gene on X chromosomes. As we know from the cats that I just explained, but we also know it. Uh, we see it in birds. We see it in cattle. We see it in a whole bunch of different species. Um, fish. And in birds and fish, there are actual indications of mutations to this pigmentation gene caused by what is called a transposon. Um, Transposons are more colloquially known as jumping genes. Um, They were described by Barbara McClintock uh, studying corn, and she called them that because it would seem like the genes would sort of move around in the genome. They would jump. Um, And basically what they are is archaic viruses that don't cause disease or anything. They'll just insert in some place, and sometimes they'll just sit there and stay there forever because they get in and they can't break, they can't come out. And while they're not doing anything, they're not reproducing like a virus would, they still act as an interrupter. So if one of those genes goes into that pigment gene, one of those jumping genes, transposons, goes into that pigment gene and breaks it, now you get an albinistic phenotype. Okay. Now, every once in a while, you get a transposon that it's not completely dead. It's not completely archaic, so it'll jump in, and it'll live happily and be reproduced, moving through the genome just as like a normal piece of mutant DNA. But then something happens that causes it to turn back on and go, you know what? I'm going to jump out of here. And when it jumps back out, now it stitches that gene back together. So when it was in there, it broke the gene, but when it hops back out, the gene gets repaired. Hmm. So if you have animals that are breeding like albinos mostly, but then that gene pops out in some subset of their cells, that little transposon gene pops out and the gene goes back to normal, then those cells, again, where the stem cell for that one cell pops out, then all the cells that that one cell makes will have the pigment in them. So then you get that black patterning again. Interesting. Okay. So like this is speculation, but it's a very it's a very neat explanation. And we have precedent for similar things happening in birds, in fish. They actually have, you know, spontaneous revertance where they'll have like they have uh, an albino strain of zebra danios and they're pure albino and they start breeding them and then they'll get normal colored ones. And when they pull those normal colored ones out and look at their genome, the transposon that was sitting in that pigment gene on the X chromosome is gone. Mm. Now Mm. it happens during uh, 
that happens during meiosis phase. So the whole animal, all of the genes in that animal are normal colored and normal patterned. So it's a normal gene throughout and it's not a true paradox. Mm -hmm. But if instead of happening in that meiosis to create the gametes, it happened just in the animal itself, you might get those little random color pat or uh, randomly colored spots that would look like the paradoxed Kenyan sand boas. Okay. So that's what is probably working, but possibly, shouldn't say probably without any more solid data. Mm -hmm. That is a logical explanation as to how it could work in Kenyan sand boas. Um, it's also possible that that may be why we see freckling in uh, the banana morph oh. in ball pythons, because it's a very similar type of thing. It's a gene that we know is sex-linked, so it's very likely on the X chromosome or what uh, or the yeah what accounts for the X chromosome. And since in ball pythons, in all pythons, uh, the X and Y are so structurally similar. They're mm. not like, you know, in humans where the X and Y are radically different. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at a karyogram, you can't tell the difference between them. So it's only a little bit that's different between them. Mm. It would, again, logically you could make an argument that since we know there's a pigmentation gene on the X chromosome, and since we've seen pigmentation genes get interrupted by this transposon, if that transposon is popping out, it would lead to little colored patches on an otherwise uncolored, you know, an otherwise mutant colored snake. Hmm. Interesting. Well, someone needs to fund that research. Then. <laughs> well, yes. And again, that, with the stuff that uh, Ben at RGI and Hannah at the Ball Python Genetics Project are doing, if they look into it and they, you know, get the resolution that they need, they might be able to see whether or not that is a transposon. And if it is a transposon, then it, that would add, you know, more credence to the idea that the Kenyan sand boas, you know, that that albino paradox is, again, caused by something similar and then you could once you know that that's what it is if that's what it is once you can find that location it's a lot easier to develop assays to test in different species because there's a high degree of conservation in those genes between different species hmm. interesting now mm -hmm. right have you have you seen an incubation um you know if, if you've had a um something go wrong with the heating unit and it cooks the eggs, but some hatch. Have you had such a situation? And if so, what did the survivors look like? I haven't had, well, I haven't had any that have resulted in any kind of uh, pigment or pattern issue. Mm -hmm. I did have a clutch this past year where there was a small spike at the very beginning of the incubation. and um, resulted in some physiological effects. The animals, four out of three out of the three out of the six, mm -hmm. were born with I would I call it pigtail. Oh. Their very tip of their tail is basically folded over on itself. So instead of being a normal pointed tail, it's this little blocked off, right. curly pigtail type thing. Um, and that's more about the skeletal structural 
physiologic development of the animal that early on in the embryo. So if you've ever seen a snake embryo in development, it it starts as a like a corkscrew okay. early on. And basically that temperature spike in incubation, you know, the warmer the temperature, the warmer cells divide. I mean, it's just like, you know, you think about it, it's like bacteria when you put them on a, cult, a Petri dish to culture them. If you put them at a higher temperature, they're going to show up and grow on that plate bigger and faster than if you keep them at a lower temperature. Well, the same thing happens with the egg. If you, if you cook them hotter, then the embryo is going to grow faster and stuff. And if you get that spike, you can get a really rapid development of growth. And then when the temperature goes back down to normal, that last little part gets stunted. Oh. And because, because of the, the flux and flow and the change in gradient of the different cell signals, just that very end part doesn't get the signal that it's supposed to start straightening out. And it stays curled over on itself. Yeah, my question. Um, yeah, my question was because of those two roadkill clutches. I, you know, you, I find them in July on blacktop, you know, and so um, they haven't started incubation. They hadn't even really gotten out of the mother's body at that point. But, um, and I've never, you know, usually I just want to get off the road quickly. I didn't bring, mm-hmm. a, you know, a thermometer to test like what have, what temperature extreme have these eggs been subjected to both outside and inside the mother's body. Um, I put a, uh, together a kit to do that now because scientific curiosity <laughs> and, and then to then... Carry, a th- carry, carry a laser thermostat with, or thermometer <laughs> with you all the time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so, you know, it's, I just wondered if um, because it's such a big debate in the turtle world, I just wondered if that was, you know, reported in the snake world too. Um. You can see things like that. You can see changes in pattern, um, not so much in coloration in general, but I could see how it could sort of induce what looks like a color change when it's really just a pattern change. Um, and again, that would come down to the same type of thing. And in your case, it could be temperature. It could also be oxygen. Yes. Um, because, you know, when when the eggs are in the mother and her heart's beating and everything, she's still getting this oxygen flow and change through the system, through the eggs. Well, when she dies and that stops, mm-hmm. then you get a hypo-oxygenated environment there for a while, mm-hmm. which could cause changes in genetic expression yes. that then become you know, permanent in as much as for the animal, because the genes that were used in the development of the animal got suppressed. Now they're not permanent changes necessarily because when those animals then grow up and develop and breed, their genes work just fine. It's just that when they were incubating in the mother and everything, that change in oxygen or that change in temperature caused a shift in the expression levels that they needed at the time. Mm -hmm. So the gene isn't broken. It's just, it was not turned on fully at the right time or not turned off fully at the right time. Okay. That reminds me. That reminds me of the question is, so we have this mutation that inhibits something possibly, um, and it creates a morph that people really like. Now, what, um, uh, what is the um, chance that it just won't even show up to 
um, through the history of trying to breed this animal, that the trait never shows up that it is phenotypically exhibiting. Um, it just will not breed. What is inhibiting um, those genes to be passed to its offspring? If you're dealing with an environmental stressor that causes gene expression to change mm -hmm. purely based on the environment, it's not actually changing the gene. Okay. It's just changing how the gene is expressed. So since the gene itself is not changed in the organism, mm -hmm. then when it passes on its genetics to the next generation, without that environmental stressor, okay. all of its offspring should behave the same as a normal wild type would because their genetics is normally wild type. Okay. I see. So I'm trying to think of a really a good analogy to make it a little bit clearer because I know that sometimes talking in the hand waving of genetics <laughs> that I that I'm very prone to doing, which most people aren't seeing right now, um, is a lot more difficult to understand. So <clears throat> yeah, I, okay. I picture it really well, but yeah, and 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 I can picture it in my head, but mm -hmm. I I have often been tangent time so <laughs> if you've ever seen that movie a beautiful mind oh yes like throughout the movie like it shows him like seeing equations and how like the football is passed and all these things and it shows that like now when that movie first came out my mother watched it and she's like oh i totally understand you now you're just like this guy <laughs> and I, I had not seen the movie but i knew yeah. who the guy was and i was like great that's really nice of you mom to say that i'm a paranoid schizophrenic and that you you watched this movie and thought i was paranoid schizophrenic well but, no, what she was getting at was it's it's very much like how like i look at the world in the same kind of way you know i i don't just look at the world and think snake dog tree i think you know i i see in my head the genetic patterning and how these things interact yes. with one another the uh -huh. same way he had he saw those mathematical and equations in his head mm. um but once i figured that out i was a little bit less offended by my mother saying that i was paranoid <laughs> schizophrenic <laughs> um so what i what i i know that what i see in my head is often very much different than what other people can understand because they just don't have that same bizarre mental picture that i have yeah um so that's why i, I try to talk in analogies where i can um yeah, you you do guess, really well with um, playing cards. I notice <laughs> playing cards is is another good one. Yes, um, I don't have a good playing card analogy here. Um, well, um, well, let's go back to the faucet because I was talking about that. Okay, so faucets turn on and off. Yeah. Okay, and if my faucet here turns on and off. That's the genetic component. I'm a genetic component because I control how the faucet turns on and off. But the environmental control to all of this is the temperature. If it freezes and the water freezes and can't flow through my pipe, that's environmental. So if I try to turn my faucet on and I only get a trickle, even though I have it full blast, because my pipe is frozen, to, that's due to environmental. Well, when the pipe unfreezes and it goes back to normal conditions, nothing has changed about the faucet. 
Okay. And so it begins to behave normally. And so that's probably why all these hypomelanistic or, or um, clowns are not reproducing um, in Eastern paintings. And um, they said a strain has yet to be um, proven. You know, none of these. Yeah. yeah. Because it's it's the environment that's affecting their development early on, mm-hmm. but it's not actually changing the genetics. It's just changing how the genes are working at a critical time point in their development. Okay. And so when those animals breed, and they're breeding under normal conditions with other animals bred under normal conditions, all the babies are going to come out normal because their genetics hasn't changed and the environment is stable. Now, if you bred them and then you did weird things to their environment, you might get the same thing. But at the same time, you could breed non-clown animals and subject them to that same strange environmental condition Mm -hmm. and potentially see the same issues and start to develop these clown animals because it's not the gene that's changing. It's how all the genes are forced to change under these radical condition changes that they're subject to. Right. And yeah, Uh, you're dealing with animals that you're getting eggs out of a dead mother (laughs) that sitting on this on a road. So Mm -hmm. they're, they're dealing with oxygen deprivation and temperature spikes, both up and then back down. Because Mm -hmm. once you get them off the road, yeah, well now the temperature, which was high drops plummeting back down. Yes. And they're hypoxic at the same time. And then you get them into a, an environmental condition, an incubator, and you get them normalized mm-hmm. and the rest of the progress is normal. Well, okay, but you ramped them up like crazy and then you crashed them back down first and then you got right. them stable during that crazy transition period of highs and lows and bad oxygen. The genes were just kind of getting thrown around like ping pong balls. And then when mm-hmm. everything calmed down again, yeah, and everything's working normally. Yeah, I had a, a breeder ask, like, well, can you go out there in that same place and 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 read the temperature of the road? And I go, I wouldn't replicate the conditions because, you know, four of these um, embryos died in development. And it was a horrible, you know, how, um, yeah. how what, you know, they were twisted and, and you know, so mutated that uh, I said, I, I wouldn't ever want to reproduce that myself. <laughs> right. And, and that's, you know, that's the serious downside of, you know, trying to do things. And people have done stuff like that, which is, I think, just seriously messed up. Like, you know, yeah. um, there was a rumor that somebody put out about the palmetto corn snake, that the reason it ended up being the way it was, was because the eggs got covered in fungus and it was a transfer of the fungus gene to the embryo and i was like okay well one you're so far off about that possibility (laughs) as i can't even get into the science fiction (laughs) why would you then go out and want to go out and intentionally expose other eggs Mm -hmm. to funguses when you don't even know what fungus it was that may or may not did not did not let me be clear but that that people are telling you caused it like that's just insane. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. I think he needs to have, um, to set up the experiment. He needs some help on the parameters. <laughs> yeah. And you know, you would have to go in knowing that like, okay, yeah. So you're dealing with a, a temperature spike, a hypoxic environment. Yeah. 
and then a temperature drop, still hypoxic, not as hypoxic. Right. And you're like, you know, so expect that anything you do this to, yeah, you're going to be killing yes. most of what you do. Exactly. And if you're just going to be doing it to kill for the satisfaction of getting a change out, yeah, and your goal is to make the change stable, like you're wrong on so many levels that it's mm-hmm. it's disgusting. That yeah. All you're thinking about is how do I make this change and make it permanent when the reality is you're not going to make it permanent mm-hmm. and you're going to kill a whole bunch of things in the process. Yeah. And, and, and how can you, how could I have even measured, you know, like uh, what was the oxygen level when I showed up? What was the oxygen level 10 minutes before that? What was the oxygen, you know, that there was no control to the temperature flow or, you know, or, you know, the, the temperature on the road, what did it start off with? You know, um, mm-hmm. you know, five of the eggs are in the body still and five on the road. Um, yeah, five came out wild type and, and, uh, the other five, which I kick myself for not marking the eggs like on road in body, you know, I, I, it's like, ah, that could have answered some of my own curiosity. Um, but you know, it was, you know, we were a tourist area and the road was busy and I wanted to get out of there, you know, yeah. you know? and so, and I just, I didn't even think they were going to hatch. I mean, come on, they're eggs on a blacktop in July, you know, but you know, why not give it a try? So, I mean, you know, so I, I was telling him about, there's just no way to measure those parameters because it was not a controlled situation. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah. <laughs> Cause yeah, if all, if the five clowns that you had were in the mother, that would just a hundred, well, he wouldn't hundred percent prove that it's oxygen deprivation, but you, you could more lean one way or the other, whether it's genetic or it's. Yeah, you know yeah. something to do well, with whether it's whether it's the temperature or the oxygen. Right, but yes. it could also be it could be both of them because if they're in the mother and the temperature's elevated because mom is yes. sitting there rotting on the black asphalt yes. versus the eggs that are out, which they're getting good oxygen flow simply because they're in the environment, but they're also getting heated up. Yeah, you know, like okay, then somebody's like, okay, so it just means it has to be hypoxic. Well, no, what if it's hypoxic <laughs> and heat? Yeah. And again, like, do you really want to mess around yeah. with that? And again, potentially kill off animal. you know, what would be normally healthy animals just right. for your own whim? Right. Yeah. And so the this clutch that was brought to me, I didn't find the body. It was brought to me by a teacher who found the body um, on the road in uh, August. And she goes, can you cut this turtle open and see if there's any eggs? You know, there's a bunch of them that were already smashed like her, but there may be some inside. I said, sure. You know, by the time I got the female, which was about an hour after she had found it and she had to, she left it on her porch. You know, the turtle was dead. I didn't take temperature measurements. I just did an egg topsy and opened her up and found two intact uh, eggs and incubated them um, safely you know, controlled humidity and temperature. And, and lo and behold, they're the only ones out of the egg rescues I've had this year that, um, you know, had abnormal scoots. And then, um, and then the one had, you know, the color aberration. So yeah, there is something, you know, going on on those extremes, but, you know, I'm, I'm going to ask the game and fish if I can keep the one with the color aberrations and the, the worst abnormal scoots and just see if she thrives. You know, I I don't think I'd want to breed her. I, maybe I would have if the scoot arrangement was better, you know, near normal. <laughs> but, 
but right now she's growing the way all the others are, um, uh, you know, in this rescue situation, cause I keep them quarantined. And so, you know, it's my curiosity, you know, I, I now having been away from science, unlike you who are, is, is drenched in it, I call myself a citizen scientist because now I've been an artist for nearly, you know, over 20 years making large outdoor monuments in bronze. And that has all my energies, but my scientific curiosity as far as genetics goes is still there. So, yeah. And I mean, I, I kind of hold the mentality of once a scientist, always a scientist. Mm -hmm. Um, And citizen science is like like we were getting at earlier, I think it's a great thing. I just, the tragedy is that a lot of citizen science goes unnoticed because there are barriers in place, both yes. real and artificial, mm-hmm. um, but it's still good stuff to have, you know, and, you know, in terms of keeping the animal, I think you could probably make a valid argument simply because you could point out to, um, you know, fish and wildlife that, this animal obviously has a physical defect in its abnormal scoots. So releasing it into the wild population, it is going to be at a survival disadvantage anyways. Yeah. You yeah. Know, Cause I don't know how it often. would probably be prudent to say, you know, I'll still release all of the normal wild type ones because mm-hmm. everything about them is normal. So they should live normal, healthy lives in the wild. But this one has obviously got physical defects to it, yes. which would put it at a disadvantage. So throwing it out there means it's going to die anyway. Yeah. And I wouldn't want, I mean, I used to breed horses. You don't breed the weakest, you know? Right. And so, you know, I, I'm curious about the swirls that she's got, but do, you know, do I want to create more abnormal scoots, you know, um, that could have, who knows what biochemical pathways are, are all funky, you know? (laughs) I don't don't know know how different turtles develop from snakes, but you said you have spikes with your snakes and then the tail gets kinked or there's kinks. So an abnormal scoot would make kind of sense on a turtle. It's the tail end of the animal. It's the, I maybe, I don't know. I don't know what the developmental pathway of an embryonic turtle looks like. So I don't know where exactly the skeletal structure of the scoots comes into formation versus when the temperature spike would be occurring. Like I, mm-hmm. I know the, the, the pattern and pathway of snake development. And mm-hmm. I know, you know, I can trace back when that spike happened and it corresponds to the same time that we would have this developmental, you know, mm-hmm. yeah. scaffolding for the snake yeah. body plan mm-hmm. without, but without knowing what it is for the turtle, I can't, right. I can't say that with any, with any degree of confidence, but yes, it would, it would potentially be, it would potentially be an indicator that a temperature spike leading to a physical uh, abnormality or differentiation, you know, could be very closely correlated to one another. Yeah. Yeah. Cause um, the, the, the larger clutch came um, from a female that was crossing the road and I was going to help her cross the road and I said, oh, I'll take a picture of her carapace and her um, plastron and then, you know, just to see if I ever see her again. And then when I turned her over, she had these shell rot holes all the way, almost through the bone on one, um, possibly who knows how long it would take to get 
into the body cavity. And so I go, okay, I've got a scientific collector's permit. They'll, and, and I'm supposed to you know, help rescue turtles too, see if they can be rehabilitated. I'm taking her to the vet. And, and uh, I never had shell rot in that, in any of my turtles. So I, I learned what they use now um, instead of what we used when I was a kid back in the sixties <clears throat> and seventies. <laughs> and so, you know, and her, the vet goes, well, you know, she's, I said, I palpated eggs. You know, I don't know if I have to treat her now for weeks. I don't know if she's going to be comfortable as a wild turtle to lay her eggs. So he popped her with oxytocin and, you know, we had, um, let's see, what was it? Uh, nine, um, 13 eggs, two came out broken. Some didn't hatch. Uh, out of her, seven are really growing great, totally normal. And of course, she didn't go through those extremes like the, you know, roadkill clutches had. So I just didn't know if you guys were seeing that in lizards and snakes, too. Yeah, there, like I said, I have, I have seen uh, pattern abnormalities in snakes due to incubator issues okay um and yeah they, they likewise they never proved to be genetic mm -hmm. interesting interesting well you have kukris i have kukris oh, okay <laughs> so i i have can opener snakes I, <laughs> <laughs> and and i'm a novice can you explain what a kukri is a kukri is a south East Asian snake. Um, they are classified as rear fanged. However, they are not. They are not rear fanged venomous. Um, so they have a trio of enlarged teeth. You know, about halfway back in their jaw, and the the tooth shape is sort of swept back the way a kukri dagger looks. That you know that okay. sort of angled look mm -hmm. that's how they get their yeah. name is their tooth shape is very similar oh, um okay. their teeth they use them they are wickedly sharp they are wickedly <laughs> serrated Ooh. and they use them to cut things open um and there was a recent paper which again this is one of the faults with our hobby is they read a paper and then they take the paper as to be the absolute you know, definition of everything that happens and don't consider that there's a much bigger picture. So what that one paper says does not define everything about the snake. So the recent paper showed that some of these snakes were going after extremely large toads, like way larger than the snake could ever eat. And instead of trying to eat the toad whole, what they do is they come up alongside of them and they sideswipe them. They use those teeth to cut open their abdominal wall. Wow. And then they crawl in through the hole that they made and eat all the internal organs out of the snake. Okay. Or out of the toad. Wow. Um, so <laughs> now, now you ask, you know, people out there and they're like, oh yeah, this is what they evolved to do. Okay. No, that's not. The fact that they're going after toads is one use that they have for this but if you go read through the literature more deeply there are people who report like i tried to feed my kukri a mouse and the mouse was too big and it went and just ate out you know it was a frozen thawed mouse they cut open the cavity and they went in and they ate all the organs out of the 
cavity of the mouse because the mouse was too big to eat, but they could still get in. Um, well, there are reports of them scavenging off of roadkill and other dead animals. And again, they're not eating the whole animal. They're eating parts of it, which, again, I would guarantee the parts of it is going to be a they went into the body cavity and started eating the organs. Um, there's also a great paper. Um, it's more focused on the behavior of these snakes. But when you stop and realize that the behavior is sea turtle nest raiding oh. and how females will basically stake out their own nests and will fight off anybody who comes around them. And the males are much less likely to stick around nests that are already staked out by a female because the way that these animals battle each other is they bite along the tail. And, you know, if you keep your hemipenes in your tail... (laughs) then being repeatedly bitten there is going to lead to you basically being castrated. (laughs) So if you go into a nest, a turtle nest, and somebody's already there, you leave real fast. (laughs) And it also correlates nicely to behavioral studies where females, their, their lower halves of their body and their tails are heavily, heavily, heavily scarred, and males are not so much. Wow. Because again... They're focusing their attacks towards the tails of each other, and the males are going to want to, behaviorally, they're going to want to leave because they don't want, you know, if you can, if you sustain damage to your tail, your, you know, that part of your body, you're mm-hmm. not going to be able to breed very well. Yeah. Wow. Um, but then the correlate that people are ignoring is, well, why are they going after these turtle nests? Well, because they, like, the snakes will stake out in the brush and stuff during nest season. And when the turtles come and start laying the eggs, that's when the snake dives into the nest. And then they spend the rest of the time sitting in the nest, just eating the eggs. Wow. I had to cut into the eggs because they're, they're leathery eggs and then eat the contents of the eggs. So now they've just got a smorgasbord that they've staked out. And like each nest will have, you know, between one and three females Mm -hmm. that live inside the nest and eat the turtle eggs. So in the, they glut, and then they just go back out and, you know, once breeding season is over, they leave and they, you know, hang out and do whatever it is they're doing and eating in the wild. Um, I've, I have fed when I get slugs, you know, in my ball Python clutches and stuff, I'll just stick the slug in the cage mm-hmm. and the kukri goes over and slices it open and then just guzzles down as much as it can and then leaves the contents behind. Wow. So that I I, I I saw a pit <laughs> I saw a video on your Instagram showing one mm-hmm. of them eating the eggs like that. And um, do you know? Yeah. Um, now I, I I cut the quail eggs because they're a little bit tough. Although I did have one uh, one female, my largest one. I don't have her anymore. She could actually crack open an egg on her own. Oh. I was I was interested to see if she could do it, and I watched her do it. Oh. And I didn't videotape that one, but it's it's pretty impressive how mobile those fangs are, or those those teeth are when they're trying to get them cracked open. Oh, so they didn't use their body to curl it and crush it. They no used the fangs. Wow, interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they 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 basically they'll hinge their jaw open, and then they tilt the teeth out. 
and put oh. it on and they cantilever back and forth. And that's why I call them a can opener because oh. it's like oh. those old school can openers where you punch and crack and twist along. That's what they do. They just go crunch, 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 crunch until wow. they can get it open enough to push their head in. That's amazing. So when you're a uh, cage cleaning and all of that, are you using gloves with these guys? <laughs> or? I have them in very heavily naturalistic cages. Okay. Um, they don't require a lot of cleaning. In fact, if I'm not fast enough, their microfauna habit inhabitants will consume an entire shed skin. Oh. Um, oh, wow. When I am going in there, I'm mostly going in for things using 14-inch forceps. Okay. <laughs> um, but when I, when I want to breed them, you know, I keep them in individual cages because I don't want them fighting all the time because I really don't want my males to be castrated. Um, I do have, I, I have some of those like cutting, you know, chef's gloves that they, that you wear so that if you cut your hand with a butcher's knife, you don't actually cut your hand. I have a pair of those and I will put those on to go digging through the cage to find the little buggers. (laughs) They're there. They don't mess around. Um, I, I haven't posted it up, but I had like, they come out of the egg with attitude. And I have a picture of a baby that had literally just come out of the egg. I picked it up to put it into a deli cup and in the transfer from the egg bin to the deli cup, it decided to bite me and oh. my hand was covered in blood. And we're talking about a snake that's, you know, oh this long and half the diameter of a pencil. Holy cow. They're, they're vicious right out of the egg and those teeth are sharp and sharp and sharp. Um, the adults I've been tagged more than a few times bleed profusely like i said their teeth are serrated so they're great for causing a lot of damage but they also have a tendency when they're defensively biting they bite and then they corkscrew so the cut isn't just like a straight line cut it's oh jeez it's a curved whipped cut and i have i always end up getting them in the worst place like i got one in between my fingers so then i had to like wrap gauze you know figure eight around my hand and i had to super glue it shut because it just would not stop. Um, no baking for you at that time. <laughs> I, I put a glove on and was, you know, baking that way. Um, I have heard of people who have actually been bitten by significantly larger animals and ended up getting stitches because the wow. bite is so bad. Yeah, that's interesting. They get their name for a reason. They got a dagger yeah. in their mouth. <laughs> they are. They are. Yeah. And they're just, they're full of piss and vinegar and they're great snakes and I love them. But I, I make sure that I am very emphatic about, you know, if you have one, you're going to get bit. Like, wow. I, I, I would, I would say if anybody wants to know if they can keep a venomous animal Mm -hmm. to try training on one of these, (laughs) because if you get bit, you're going to end up bloody as hell and you're going to know about it and you're going to learn really, really good technique and they don't ride a hook and they turn around on a dime. And wow. so like you, you really have to be aware. And even when I am very aware, they'll, they'll turn around and mess me up. It's, it's not, it's not fun when they get angry. So I do my best to not handle them and when I do have to handle them, I use those gloves. And yeah. how, how is it that you lock the cage? <laughs> um, they're, they're up high. So 
my youngest can't get into them. My oldest is not stupid enough to go into them. (laughs) (laughs) And nobody's allowed in the snake room who isn't me or, you know, the kid, they, they know the kids know not to go in the snake room without me. If there are friends or something over the kids, tell them not to go in the snake room. But my, my eldest also made an artwork sign that my wife had put onto like a metal plate to put on the wall that says unattended children will be fed to the snakes. So (laughs) that's usually enough to defer, you know, the, the, the friends of youngest who decide that they want to go see snakes to not go in there by themselves. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I helped um, other people raise their teenagers and um, have you gotten to that stage yet? <laughs> oh yeah. No, I, I have a 19 year old. Oh, okay. Um, the, the nice thing about my 19 year old is she's, she's a hyper introvert. So oh. one, she doesn't have a lot of friends, which is actually a bad thing. Um, it would be nice if she had more friends. And she was just more social so that she could get out there and experience a little bit of the world. Yeah. Um, I've a lot of that right now with, you know, COVID and my wife's yeah. health issues. But, um, like, she is, she's very much a homebody. You know, she's, she's the Sheldon, you know, she, she is happy to just sit in her room and do nothing. And so the hardest time we have had with her is like, just, motivating her to do things like when she she didn't get her driver's license for two years Mm -hmm. and we wanted her to do it not because we wanted to like get her out of the house but we wanted her to be able to help us like it would be nice if you could pick up your sister at school when we're both busy and have doctor's appointments for Uh, things and just like it was almost like having to to poke her with a stick. I, oh, I don't feel so just bad. Like, go, just go get your driver's license. <laughs> go yeah. get out of the house and go. That was, that was the difficulty that we had with her. Our nine-year-old, when she hits our teenage years, like I have a feeling that I'm going to have to sleep out in the yard because she's going to be climbing out the window. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But hopefully, hopefully that's still years away and we'll be able to instill a, please don't do this because it's going to make your father old and gray. Yeah. Well, you know, I, I can, as my, my father said, um, I'm glad she's into aquariums and horses because then she's not into beer and boys. <laughs> I didn't get my driver's license and, and get a car till I was a junior in college. So, um, you know, it's just, I just didn't need one. I had my bicycle. I just rode everywhere. And so, but you know, we all grow up differently. That's one thing I learned in helping raise other people's teens. <laughs> so, yeah, I, yeah, it's uh, it's lovely that we can have them involved in the natural world, especially in setting up habitats. Because, I mean that that is just so interesting. Um, so you show your habitats that you've set up on Instagram, or where can we see most of these habitats? Um, I I've actually been really negligent about posting a lot of my habitat pictures my habitats and pictures. I probably should show those off a little bit more. There's um, a lot of cooking going on over there. Yeah. There's, there's <laughs> my, <laughs> my, my Instagram is for my, my cooking. I, I, I put snakes and things up every now and then. And when I, you know, when I go wandering around in springs and summers looking for things, usually I, I hardly ever find any good herbs. I'll, you know, find the, the occasional salamander, but I find like a ton of different kinds of fungus and mushrooms and stuff mm. or all kinds of bugs. So I'll put those pictures up. Too. Um, <laughs> but you can find me on Facebook, Travis Wyman. Um, 
I am not a motocross racer. So <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you're into motocross and want to follow him too, that's great. But if you're looking for me, I'm not the motocross racer. Uh, my profile picture should be pretty easy to find. It's me with my green tree python. You know, I'm holding her. So mm-hmm. cool. um, you can find me on Instagram. I'm snakes underscore n underscore bakes. So snakes and bakes. <laughs> those are my two real passions. Huh. Um, do, do you mess you with can, the chemistry of, of baking? <laughs> a little bit. Um, you know, that's 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 another science type of thing. Like, yeah. you know, it cooking and baking really is a science. But at the same time, I'm very much the experimentalist. So, like, I find a recipe that I like or I think I'll like. Mm-hmm. And then as I'm starting to do it, I just kind of start winging it on changes that oh. I'm going to make. Uh-huh. <laughs> and it it's... Like so far, I've done really well. I've, you know, I've only very rarely had like massive catastrophic failures. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem comes in that like I'll bookmark the recipe, but I won't actually make any notes about the changes <laughs> that I made. So that it's like, I oh yeah, I remember this. I liked this. Uh-huh. And then I look at the recipe. I'm like, nowhere in the recipe does it call for this and this and this. And I know that I had that in there. So <laughs> what the hell did I do? Um, yeah, like my, my, my baking for this week. So I, I, every weekend I bake, uh, and take it into work for my coworkers. It's become a thing where I just call it <laughs> baking for the coworkers. Um, and I, I have oriented a lot of it around birthdays where if somebody has got a birthday that week, they have the, I give them the right to, you know, a first refusal basically. So if there's something that they would like to have, uh-huh then they get the choice for the week. If they just want to pass, then I'll, you know, oh, I'll wow. do whatever I want, or I'll just ask a whole bunch of people what they would like and come up with a group consensus type of thing. But the one for this week, um, I was just given, you know, something almond or something banana. And um, I, when I lived in Atlanta, I found this just hole in the wall bakery. I, I could probably could never find it again, but they had this fantastic amaretto cake. And I was like, you know, I want to see if I can, you know, make something like that. And so I looked up amaretto cake recipes and I found one and then I was like, okay, well, got to convert this into cupcakes. <laughs> and then as I was sitting there, like thinking about it, part of me was like, you know, what goes really well with, with that amaretto almondy is cherries. Oh yeah. Like, just those nice regular cherries. So I'm like, I'm going to put cherry in it too. And, um, so I then made a, Amaretto cherry white chocolate ganache Ooh. filled almond cupcakes with amaretto buttercream. Oh. <laughs> and you know, the recipe yeah. that I the recipe that I, you know, now have bookmarked in my recipe book just is almond cake. Yeah. It's like <laughs> this is the, somewhere I should probably write down how I came yeah. up with the Amaretto cherry white chocolate ganache filling and the amaretto buttercream, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. So do you find yourself like testing these things before you oh, before no. you send them out? Oh, no. oh. <laughs> I just, Heck yeah. I, I I just I wing it, and I'm convinced that you know I'm convinced that I can succeed. And and if you don't, you have I enough must... times that no one's going to say anything. Exactly. I said enough times that very few of my failures are remembered. Like, I think the only failure that anybody remembers is the one that I remember. I tried making um, these peppermint chip 
cookies. And I don't know what I did wrong, but like they just turned into like a sh- just the whole cookie sheet was one giant <laughs> caramelized baked candy slime. And I was like, I fuck. I just I sh-, and I put the picture up and everything. And I was like, guys, I screwed this one up and I don't I got nothing. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Oh. Yeah, they, all the best recipes are, are not made for people like me, a celiac who has to eat absolutely gluten-free or I make a trip to the, you know, ER. And so it's like, I'm, I'm always altering um, uh, recipes. And like you, I don't always write down my altar that I liked and then I can't remember what I did. <laughs> I do that a lot too. But that's what makes it fun. Yeah, yeah. Experiment. <laughs> it's, it's that. It's that random element. You know, it's that genetic random element. That, <laughs> yeah. You know, it's it's natural selection, but in the kitchen. Does yeah. this recipe survive all of the changes that I make to it? Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Uh, I will cut your what we've already recorded before. I'm sure you've said it about six times this week. So <clears throat> I think I'm up to five. Oh wow. Oh. Yeah, I'm nice. not going to make you be the sixth. You've already done it for me. I have it. If anyone else wants a recording, like, <laughs> I'll share that with people. That's uh, fine. <laughs> um, well, it's It has gotten some traction, which has been great, and I have been grateful for. Um, had a half dozen or so people that I know reach out to me about it. Um, the donor coordinator, uh, apparently somebody asked, like called in to talk to them about getting registered and was told that at this time they are deferring new registrants because they have so many people in for Julie that oh, wow. <laughs> like they, they need to clear some of them out first, whether through processing further into the system or being eliminated for whatever needs. But they're like, we need to slow down, which... <laughs> You know, that's awesome. When, to hear. when when my wife heard that, she's like, "Well, but that she's like, I don't know that I lo- that's a good thing." I was like, "No, that's a good thing. Like, if they're getting so many people that they need to slow it down for a minute, yeah. that's a good yeah. good thing." Yeah, which sounds like a very contrary thing to say, but you know, yeah, they want to do the screening and do it right and take the time to do that. Right, right. So I'm I'm not overly concerned. Like, I'm sure that once they've you know, process some of these people through, then they'll reach back out to the people that they said, okay, now we'll reactivate you and bring you in, but let us get with all of the people that have come before you first. Yeah. So yeah, I'm, I am very, I'm, I'm very, very grateful for just the turnout that has come around from, you know, reaching out. And I know that some of it's probably come from my wife's postings too, but at the same time, like, I know that there has been a boost from the herb side of things. So it is, it is very much appreciated. The, the support that I have had from people, you know, I, I hugely appreciate your reaching out to me and giving me just one more place to be able to, you know, to get my message out. You were on my list of people to reach out to, to get on the show. I didn't plan this early, but that's okay. We'll get you on. (laughs) If you could produce a species in captivity that's either hard or hasn't um, been um, bred, what would it be? Oh, 
this is this is going to be such a strange departure. Okay. <laughs> like you're because this is nothing that we have spoken about at all this whole time. Mm-hmm. I don't know why I am absolutely enamored with the Australian turtle frog. Oh, okay. It is the ugliest, <laughs> most bizarre creature you have ever seen. Like it literally picture a turtle that's been pulled out of its shell. Oh my. And that's what this thing looks like. Oh my. And, you know, one, they're only in Australia, so obviously we can't get them. And two, I don't believe anybody in Australia is working with them. But, you know, there's just something about them. I see them and my brain goes, I want you. I want to have a whole <laughs> colony of you. And they're, they're, they're small. They're, you know, like half dollar size. Oh. But like, oh. I want to have a colony of those things and be able to keep them and breed them just because they are so weird. I got to look. Them up. <laughs> I, I have never heard of them. I'll have to look them up. Yeah. yeah, definitely look them up. They, like I said, they are so bizarre looking. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've, uh, it was really hard because everyone who's been on NPR or anything it's always getting the question of well it, you could keep anything what would you keep and you uh, have answered that so yeah, yeah. I, I had to Quite think surprisingly. of something, <laughs> something uh, along those lines um yeah well i yeah there's a there's a lot more genetic questions i'd like to ask but you know it's uh we, we could do that at another time <laughs> You know, it's yeah, like I said, I'm I'm always game to come back on. Awesome. We enjoyed having you. Thank you so yes. much. It's, Thank you I so much. I appreciate you having me on. And uh I guess for the show you can reach out at uh at Herp Talk Radio on Instagram. We're on YouTube now. Um at Herp Talk Radio, youtube.com at Herp Talk Radio. Um Herp Talk Radio at gmail.com if you want to reach out, have questions. Um, suggestions, people you want on the show, please feel free. We would, we would love some input. Yes. Uh, other than that, you guys have a good week and we'll see you right back here next week. Sounds great.